Last Tuesday, with it being 4th of July, our family was enjoying the day off, and we drove up uh, actually to Sycamore Hot Springs, checked out their oasis, uh, the, the, the bigger party hot tub pool there, uh, just to see what it was like. Had a great time, and as we drove into Santa Maria, it was the perfect time crossing the bridge, coming off the bluff from Napomo. We saw all of the fireworks that were exploding, which is, again, why I don't want to be in charge of students uh, during that time. Youth group will be back this week. That's one of the few times last Tuesday we take a break. But let me explain a little more perhaps why I don't um, enjoy being in charge of people when fireworks are taking place. We've heard, or you might have heard people talk about core memories, things when you're little that have an impact on you, deeper than just a memory. I think these might be some of them. But I was reminded Tuesday night of, of one thing in particular, but then this week, two other stories or events from my family. One is this. My grandma Anna had two amazing grandmas, Grandma Smith, Elizabeth, and then Grandma Anna Barr. That's my dad's grandmother. You've heard about her before. But we had a 4th of July where we had sparklers. We were little, and she lit them, and they have the little bit of sparkle at the end and a big, long handle. And this was my grandma Anna. She decided that was not exciting enough. And so for the next year at 4th of July, she had made homemade sparklers. It's always a great idea to go with homemade fireworks. But she had taken coat hangers, dipped them in something, whatever it was, uh, to sparkle. What she Pre-internet days, she found out what they they did. It's terrifying to think of Grandma and her little bomb factory in the back shed of her mobile home park. But um, she dipped them... All the way down to the tiniest little stub of a handle, just enough for her grandkids to hold. And the rest of it was sparkle. And then lit them on fire and handed handed them to us. And adults, you have to remember, I realized this morning why that was even more terrifying. Don't forget, I I have a six-foot arm span. It's my height. Usually our our arm span is about the same. So, you know, almost three feet at at the end of these things. But as a little kid, it wasn't three feet long. It was, you know, like a foot and a half. So that was closer to my head. I don't remember how young, but she lit that on fire. And it's just way too close and way too little of what to hold on to. And it burned forever. We're writing our names, and it was not fun for me. Uh, Many of you might have been like, that sounds perfect. I want to meet Grandma Anna. When you get to heaven, you can ask her for a sparkler. She's already there. Uh, and probably blowing up the place. But that was one of the things I thought of. Another was a family story, and I confirmed with my dad to make sure I had the right family member. But when they were eighth graders, so again, I don't want to be in charge of eighth graders when these moments happen. They were in Missouri, a lake in Missouri, and I just found out my my great-grandma, Grandma Shaddy, was there laughing the entire time. That's Grandma Anna's mom, so a little perspective on that. But they swam out to a rock in a lake in Missouri, and they had a box of 750 firecrackers. And my dad lit a couple, and then Chuck, his cousin, asked for the lighter. And my dad reached out and handed it to him and thought he had it, so he let go. And it fell right into the box of 740-some firecrackers, which all exploded at the same time. My dad went one way, and Chuck dove the other way into about six inches of water, and grandmas were cracking up. Mom and grandma were cracking up on the shore as they watched the kids exploding out there. But the other thing, and this is what I thought of on Tuesday, and it kind of goes with the picture. If you remember, 
in 2020, 4th of July of 2020, when California said no to many things, but that included fireworks. And Santa Maria, and you might have seen the news footage coming out of L.A., both looked at the governor and said, no back. And the explosions were amazing. All illegal, of course, because they were all airborne. I'm not endorsing illegal fireworks in this story, but it was a spectacular display of two things that relate to our passage today. One is shouting back, even if in actions, if not words, no. No, that's not how this is going to work. And our state said, not only have you not been allowed to gather, but you are not going to blow things up. And everybody went out and spent more money on fireworks and found more illegal explosives and lit up the sky in an impressive display of civil disobedience. That's what it was. Um, and, and I would say a, a good form of civil disobedience, just looking back to the government and saying, you overreached on this one, and we're going to make it clear to you that we don't agree with you. However you feel about that particular 4th of July, you have to admit it was impressive. And if you saw KCAL 9 out of Los Angeles had a helicopter flying around that night, and there's a video clip that you can look up or that might pop up on the screen at some point today of just L.A. lighting up the sky across the entire valley or valleys, and it was amazing. It was an abundance and wonderful, overwhelming abundance of fireworks and color and explosion. And it was interesting to see both the state and the news reporters respond with that. But it was even more interesting just to see the people look back and say, no, your argument was wrong. You came to the wrong conclusion, at least on this one. So remember... That moment, and, and it was fun to see again this Tuesday night coming into the north part of town and see the explosions going again, even as I was very happy not to be the person responsible of eighth graders blowing things up on a rock in Missouri or our parking lot. Remember, the people with a firm no, or the response of a firm no, and the picture of abundance and what beautiful excess looks like, and I do mean that, beautiful excess, a good abundance. A little summary of where we've been the last couple weeks in Romans and on the Romans road. Romans 1.16, Paul declares, I'm not ashamed, and that's important in particular because of his setting, but also where he goes next, because chapter 1 through 3, and it culminates in 3.10 through 12, chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, where he says, we are all condemned, and that was last week, thank you for hanging in there with me. Right at the end was the glimmer of hope where it says that God is both just in his wrath, but also the justifier in redeeming at the end, near the end of chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, but in particular, verse 26. Now we're going to turn to Romans 4 through 6. And Romans 4 through 6 could be just to summarize as the story of all humanity is told through three men. I'm not going to emphasize this today, but you can look through that as we go through it. It's the story of Adam and the story of Abraham and the story of Jesus. All of humanity can be summed up in how those three interact with faith and sin and redemption. And so we're going to dive into that. I'm not going to read quite as much scripture, but uh, there's still going to be a lot of it, and we're going to jump around. I'd encourage you again, 
Read Romans 4 through 6 this afternoon. Read all of Romans in one setting if you haven't yet. And read it on a weekly basis as you're able to. And it's okay if you don't get it done every single week. Any amount of time you spend in it is going to help through this series. But our first verse today is Romans 4.3. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's very simple. Romans 4, the whole chapter is the story of Abraham and it points out continually and, and it repeats it a couple different ways. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the gospel. You're getting a glimmer of it. We've come out of condemnation, but there's hope because God isn't just isn't only just in his wrath, God is also the justifier. And then Paul points them, and them is everyone, Jew and Gentile, back to the story of Abraham. He says, look at his story. It wasn't the law that he saved through. It was faith. He believed, and that was then credited as righteousness. Romans 4, by the way, makes it very clear. Belief is not a work. Elsewhere in Scripture, it also makes that clear. But if you're ever in an argument, theological or otherwise, and that somebody's arguing that, they've missed part of the point of Scripture. Romans 4 is making it clear. Abraham didn't do anything, but Abraham did believe. Then he quotes Psalm 32, verse 7 and 8, chapter 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not, not count his sin. We're condemned. We're sinners. That's been made clear, but blessed is the one who isn't in the end condemned because God isn't holding that against them. Something has happened. Something has taken place to take condemnation off the plate. God is the justifier, and the one who has been justified is blessed. Those are the words of David. Paul's pointing back to David. If you remember, in Romans 1, earlier it also pointed out the gospel is clear throughout the Old Testament. The law and the prophets are pointing to it. So multiple times throughout Romans, he points back, Paul points back to the Old Testament to make his case. And this is one of them. David, King David, declared we're blessed if we're forgiven. Even though we were condemned and we earned that condemnation, it's justified, we are forgiven. And we are blessed if we are forgiven. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Father Abraham. And every time I hear that, I'm thinking of the song, the song that we sing in, in children's ministry, which is why you should get involved in that if you're able to. To all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, not only to the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. And he's laying out a case that Abraham wasn't only the father of the Jewish nation that in Genesis is being formed, and then we see called out of Egypt in Exodus, but he was the father of all that would believe. It's a figurative fatherhood, but that's part of his story. And even the Gentiles that Paul is ministering to and reaching out to with the gospel are the children, spiritually, of Abraham. He's going back to the promises in Genesis, by the way, where it says that Abraham will be a blessing to the world. 
for 23 to 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All those who believe in him, who believe in the one who raised Jesus from the dead, are credited as righteous, just as we saw with Abraham. And then verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's story is an example of this, that we are justified by faith, not action, not work. We are condemned by our deeds. Romans 3 through, well, it's 2, actually. Romans 2 makes that clear. Romans 1 makes that clear as well. But that condemnation section, 1 through 3, makes it clear that standard will condemn us. Any of your neighbors that wants to stand before God and be evaluated by what they've done, God says, fine, but that condemns you. But Romans 5.1 says, if you put your faith in Christ, we are justified and we find peace with God. That's the turn towards the hope of the gospel. It starts in chapter 3 near the end. You could, like I did last week where we jumped around a bit, you could jump straight to 5.1 and pick up the next part of it. That doesn't mean that that section on Abraham is insignificant. It's what I call a side dish as, as I'm teaching. I'll write that in my notes, side or side dish. It's a little bit like this. At Thanksgiving when you have those wonderful family gatherings, but probably the biggest meal of your calendar year, Christmas might come close, maybe Easter as well, but Thanksgiving's the one where we literally put it all on the table. A, a meal of just turkey would be fine, but you'd be disappointed because there's this amazing abundance of side dishes that all make the meal. They aren't the main course, but they are valuable and significant, and that's what Paul's done in Romans 4. Abraham's a side dish, not an insignificant thing. It's Thanksgiving dinner. If the sides aren't there, it wasn't quite Thanksgiving. You might have had one of those moments before, especially if the family all gathered and you weren't able to make it, and you heat up your little TV dinner, and it's just not the same in any way as if grandma's cooking. And the aunts and uncles and cousins are bringing all of the side dishes Romans 4 is an important part of the argument, but it's kind of one of those side dishes. You could jump it, jump over it, and Paul does as he explains the gospel at different points. He doesn't bring Abraham up every time, but on the Roman road, as he's talking to the Christians in Rome, he wants to make sure they get the full, again, that long-form version of the gospel. So he's putting all the sides on the table. There's quite a few others in Romans as well. I won't even get to all of them over this series those are the ones where often we have questions. What did he mean by this one? The gospel itself doesn't produce too many questions, but those side dishes are, while enjoyable, sometimes you got to think through what they mean and their substance. But 5.1 is pointing out, again, the core of the gospel, that we are justified by faith, not by works which have condemned us, and we are condemned by that and so many other things. That's what we looked at last week, and that's where Paul's been. But now he's turning to faith. We're justified by faith, and Abraham is a prime example of that. 
And then he continues on what justified by faith looks like and means. 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, while we were condemned, while we were sinners. He's going to use a lot of words to describe this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 6 through 12 points out our standing as condemned people before God a couple ways. We're the weak, we're the ungodly, we're sinners and enemies, but he doesn't leave us there because at just the right time, and then he makes, if you've ever read this and had a thought or a question come out of it, then he makes, Paul makes a statement that has always kind of puzzled me even though I know the answer because we would flip these words, I think. And he says, the good or the righteous. One would die for a good person, but maybe not a righteous person. Being a church kid, righteous is like the top. But they have a different culture. We can see it play out a little bit in Scripture. This would be the theological answer to that, I think. Good versus righteous. Jesus, at one point in Luke 18, 19, he says, why do you call me good? Somebody calls him good teacher. He says, well, before I get to what you brought up, let me get to something you didn't realize you brought up. Why do you call me, Jesus, good? And then he says, only God is good. And he's not saying, Jesus is not saying, I'm not good. Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, if you understand your profound statement that you accidentally made, you just called me God. And if I'm God, when I tell you to give up all your stuff, you're going to do it. It's the rich young ruler who walks away from him. But the fact he said, good teacher, should have said, whatever you say, no matter how ridiculous, I'm going to follow And Jesus highlights that. We kind of miss it, but Paul's saying something similar here. When he says a good man, we think of good as like, well, they're a good person. We don't don't want them condemned to hell. It makes us uncomfortable. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's only one good being ever. Because good is not our definition of good. It's the biblical definition of good. It's perfect and holy and everything else. Righteous, on the other hand, while we elevate it because we think of the gospel, and that's good. That's a good thing, by the way. Righteous, as Paul's using it, just means declared and right, like not condemned and bad. It's kind of the legal side of it. So if you've ever read that verse, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, what do you mean you wouldn't die for a righteous person? I would die for a righteous person. That's who I'd be more likely to die for as opposed to just my good neighbor well, they flip those, or rather, we flip them. It's that, if you've ever read that, I know I've read that, and you think, wait, that's backwards. Well, it's not. It's just two cultures kind of colliding and how words get used in different things. For one would scarcely die for a just legally justified person, righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, somebody really was genuinely good, one might die. I think that's what it's getting at. If I'm way off on that, that's okay. You can disagree with me. 
So I think that's what he's saying. But then he gets back to the fact that sinners, Romans 5.8, you probably memorized it. This is the gospel. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So those words, when we were weak and the ungodly and sinners, and he even says enemies, but it's showing how amazing Christ's sacrifice is because he didn't die for good people and he didn't even die for righteous people. He died for his enemies that they would be made good and declared righteous. He died for weak people and ungodly people and sinners. In other words, because again, Romans 1 through 3, he died for us. That we'd be reconciled and justified and loved. And parents, I assume that you would die for your kids. You might die for grandma. You might die for a neighbor that you like. But very few of us would die for somebody that hates us and we consider an enemy. Or that we are at odds with to the degree of war. But that's exactly what the gospel is. Don't think too highly of yourself at the beginning of the gospel. We are condemned, Romans 1 through 3, time and time again. God's not leaving us there, but he's making it clear that the sacrifice was profound and abundance. He's going to use that word in a bit. An abundance of grace. Because we weren't easy to love. We were enemies. Verse 9, it says that we're saved from his wrath. That was last week's condemnation. We are saved from all of Romans 1 through 3 through faith in Christ, because of Christ's sacrifice at the, gospel, at the cross. And that's the gospel. Christ died for the weak and the ungodly and condemned enemies. That's what we celebrate at communion like we did last week. Now, interestingly, Paul is rightly declaring those truths about us but when Jesus is praying or talking to the disciples in John 15, 13, what he says instead, and this is the profound truth of the gospel as well, he says, I lay down my life for a friend. That friend was an enemy, but through the cross, Jesus makes them a friend. I saw this on Pastor Benji's social media today, this morning, right before church, and he was, had posted a couple things that emphasize Jesus treasures you, and Jesus calls you a friend. The truth of sin and condemnation is that you are an enemy and weak and ungodly, a sinner. But how Jesus views you, if you put your faith in him, is a friend. That is the profound truth of the gospel. Then it turns to the next verse, 512, therefore, because of those things, or in, in light of that argument, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he keeps going, but I'm, I'm going to stop. I mentioned last week, in the condemnation section, Paul never throws out original sin. That doesn't mean he doesn't believe in it. He just doesn't need it to make the case 
for condemnation, which is probably good because, and maybe the Romans were the same way. We don't like that. What do you mean I'm condemned because of Adam? And Paul's just like, well, fine, I'm not going to point that out to you until later. I'm just going to point out all the other ways that you're condemned apart from Christ because you're condemned on your own merits plenty times over. I don't need to bring up original sin in Adam. But here now he does because he's going to make a comparison between Adam and Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men because all sinned. It's the concept of original sin. It's going to pop up in verse 17 again. But by the way, and I had, it was fun one time I was teaching this in, I think it was with the high school, but with the youth group. And I could tell one of the students had this kind of tension in them. They'd been wrestling with it, which is good. Parents, don't be afraid when your kids are wrestling through faith and what it means in their teen years. It's called owning your faith. It can be bad if they use the word deconstruction. It means throwing it all out and burning it all up as if it doesn't matter. But it's not bad even if they use the word deconstruction if what they mean is I'm trying to own and wrestle with what I believe and whether it's just mom and dad's faith or whether it's just because I've been to church since my first day or I'm going to own it and I'm going to follow Christ. That second one is good. Following Christ, wrestling with it, we all go through that. We just didn't used to have any terms for it, and we didn't have any problematic terms for it. It's just, it's youth ministry. It's what I love about it, is helping students wrestle through their faith. But I saw his eyes pop when I pointed this out. If you have a problem with representation in condemnation in Adam, then you should also have a problem with representation and righteousness in Christ. If you're okay with Christ representing you and you get his righteousness then don't get caught up on Adam representing you and condemning you. For one thing, Paul already pointed out, even apart from Adam, you'd have been condemned anyways. But he's not afraid of original sin. He throws it out here, verse 12 and verse 17. Yes, Adam represented us. We're condemned because great, 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 out of how many ever, how many are in there all the way to Grandpa Adam and Noah even before him. We're condemned by that sin, but Adam in particular would be the representation one. But representation is not bad because look at what representation means in the gospel. Jesus represented us at the cross. That's the argument of Romans 5. So don't get hung up on that. You can wrestle through it, but don't get hung up on it as if it's a bad thing. It's just the reality of this world as God declares it to us. Speaking of verse 17... For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Question for you to think through, and some of the Sunday school classes might interact with a variation of this. How has God's abundance of grace shown up in your life? Talk about that with people today. That's a beautiful statement. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Some of you know, I've said it before, I'm a fan of rap, and in particular Christian rap. If you're familiar with the artist Lecrae and his song Worth It, it includes an audio clip. And I'm not sure which pastor to credit. I was trying to look it up. I couldn't find it. The other singers on the song song are Kiara Sheard and Javon Harris, but I couldn't find the pastor that's quoted, but he says this, you say, but I was abused. He got greater grace. 
You say, but I was misused, but he gives greater grace. But you don't understand, I've been addicted for years. Yeah, but think of all the years of your addiction, add them together, and the verse still says, he gives greater grace. It's a great song. Go catch it, if only for that part. The sermon probably is from James 4, but to be honest, I think it fits Romans 5.17 even better. So let's return to 1 through 3 again with that in mind, and I've tweaked it. But I've rejected God's created design and purpose. He's got greater grace. But I've sinned, and in so many ways, he gives greater grace. But like everyone else, I've disobeyed my parents. You had to be here net last week, but go look it up. It's Romans 1. Condemns us to hell for disobeying your parents. We've all done it. He has still greater grace. And I've applauded the sin of, sins of others, and I've ignored my conscience, and I've worshipped other things, and I've run from him in every way. But his grace abounds and is greater still. That is the truth of the gospel. The gospel outdoes all the condemnation in Romans 1 through 3 and all the condemnable acts that you continue to do in your life. You cannot out-sin the gospel. And if you need some examples of that besides Abraham alone, go look at David. You will never be the king of Israel and betray God with your actions as much as David. And Peter, you will never look him in the face while denying him. You might totally bomb out as a Christian someday in action or taking a stand. But both David and Peter are redeemed even though they out your ability to sin. Because they had roles that you cannot match. And yet both are forgiven. God's grace is greater. It's an abundance of grace. And it comes with that free gift of righteousness. He represented you at the cross, and his righteousness is placed on you. Then it also uses uh, the phrase, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Right before that, earlier in the verse, it said death reigned through that one man. It's another contrast. That in righteousness, reigning in life as opposed to in sin, death reigning over us. It's a beautiful contrast. And then 6-1, somebody 6-1, he throws out a question. It's not the first time he does this. I'm going to go a little bit on this one, but what shall we say then? And he's going to have a dumb conclusion. He doesn't have it, but it's one that we'll hear. And if I offend you because you thought of this, just, just roll with me for a little bit. Are we, to, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if this is the case, let's sin. It's the Corinthian argument. It's the U.S. argument. It's license. Do we have license then? To that, Paul has introduced a question and he quickly rejects it. It happens a lot throughout Romans. This isn't the first time. It actually popped up in Romans 3. And it's the Greek phrase, me genoita. And none of you know what that means and that's okay. But it. It means this. There's a couple different ways to translate it. Some are better than others. It means no. But it's a profound no. It's, go back to the fireworks. No fireworks. No. <laughs> That's what it means. But let me explain some. 
It could just mean may it never be. ESV and NIV say by no means. That's good. It's not great, but it's good. Kids, if your parents look at you and say by no means, you're probably still going to do it. As parents, if you say to your kids by no means, probably still going to happen. It wasn't quite a strong enough statement. NASB says far from it. I love the NASB. It's my favorite. Every once in a while, they use a phrase. You're like, nobody talks that way in English. Far from it. Some do. Some of you do. Most of us don't. King James has a solid but not quite emphatic, even though it sounds like it, God forbid. You're like, that's pretty strong. They chase it with a therein. And, and any time in your argument you drop a strong statement and then follow it up with the English word therein, I stop listening to you. So you, you undermine your argument by dropping in many circles. Maybe not yours, but many circles. Sorry to those of you who love King James. Uh, HCSB, that's the Christian Standard Bible, Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the NAT were the best of the ones I saw. Absolutely not. If grandma says absolutely not to you, that one's probably going to work. Amplified Bible, if you ever use that, you can use it for study, by the way. Don't use it for regular reading because we kind of go crazy with it sometimes. But the Amplified Bible has its opportunity, and it hits the mark but misses its opportunity. It has the chance to shine because the Amplified adds everything, and there's so many ways that people translate this, as I'm pointing out. And it is like the only time the Amplified Bible is concise. Like, you have the chance to put them all in there, and instead they go with just a very simple and concise, certainly not. I mean, it's accurate, but you're like, come on. I looked at the Amplified Bible hoping they'd have even more than what I had. There's even one where I saw it, and I can't remember where, but it just said, let it not be so. Not very strong. Some of those are just not how we speak. It's very tame. It's very calm. It's very British Empire in the 1800s when in, their, in their manner and demeanor. Sometimes the reality of, of English translations in particular is just too hard to convey in English, in particular in the way that we know it's going to be read. Because we read poorly. We read boring. The Bible is never boring, but we read it boring sometimes. And... It makes it hard to translate in English sometimes because of that. But we need to remember, 2 Corinthians 10, 10 points this out. Paul was passionate and powerful in his letters. So he didn't go with a, may it never be. Even if that's literally what it means. It's a strong no. It's an emphatic no. It's a never. Shouted louder. I'm just being kind to you. If it was, if it was youth group, they know I'd be shouting at that point. Never! That was close. I'm way louder in youth group. Here's some illustrations of it. If those of you who love Star Wars like me, Empire Strikes Back, Luke finds out, spoiler alert, but you're like 40 years late at this point, um, that Darth Vader is his father, and he says, no, no, it's, I'm not reading this right, I know, but no, no, it's not true, that's impossible, louder, no, no, and then he lets go and flies down the chute. That's what's going on. No, 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 no. Okay, and then, ah, and that's what he does. There are a lot of memes you can go with if you don't like that one. There's the Bugs Bunny no. There's the Batman slapping Robin. Monday night uh, countdown for football, the Geico sponsored. Come on, man. Like, that would work. Maybe if football's your thing. There's the Michael Dr Jordan drug commercial. Stop it. Get some help. That, that would work if you want to. Those of you who are the Office fans, Michael Scott, you know where I'm going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit it. But no, please, no, 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 no. 
That's what Paul's saying. But if you want it in a picture or a visual, it's the fireworks. And to be honest, we're seeing it every 4th of July now. Whichever note you want to go with, just think of it now. Because Paul, the way he uses it in Romans, the first use is Romans 3, 4. I didn't have time to deal with it last week. It, and then it's used, it's 10 times in total in Romans. And I believe it's the only one. F.F. Bruce is usually right, kind of referenced that it might be elsewhere in Paul, but then he didn't reference where and I couldn't find it. So I think Paul only uses it in Romans. 3, 4, and it's a bunch of, it's 10 different questions and they all have that strong, emphatic no. Three, four, does some Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? No, strongly. Three, six, is God's wrath unrighteous? No. Three, 31, does faith overthrow the law? No. Six, two, Jesus fulfills it. Six, two, should or can we sin to highlight grace? Definitely a strong no. Stop it. 6.15, should or can we sin because we're not under the law? No. 7.7, 7, is the law itself sin? This would be our culture's question. No. 7.13, did the good, the law, bring or cause death? No. 9.14, does, does this show the injustice of God? It's talking about um, Israel and Jews falling away in particular there, and the answer is no. 11.1, has God rejected Israel? No. And 11.11, has Israel stumbled, I think what it means is only or in a way to fall completely away. And Paul's argument is a strong and emphatic no. One of my favorite sources, it's Reinecker and Rogers, it's kind of a Greek linguistic key, it's a Greek cheat sheet. Page 354 has this quote, it expresses the abhorrence of an inference which may be falsely drawn from the argument. If you're not thinking when we go through this argument, you might land on this, but that would be bad thinking and bad logic. Don't do that. Land on the right answer, and I'm going to make that clear to you with an emphatic no. And then my favorite commentary series, New American Commentary Series, this one's by Mounts. In a footnote, those of you who hate teachers that test on footnotes. I totally agree with you, but this was a good one. I read them because I got burned on that before, but page 148 in the footnote, it points out that there are, there's only 10 of that particular one, but there are 74 rhetorical questions in Romans, whereas Paul lays out his argument. He expects you to land on the right answer, and he harsh, strongly, not harshly, with an emphatic no on these 10 of them. No, don't go down that road. That's the wrong Logic. And this one is, can we sin because of grace? He addresses this also in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13, and 20. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, 24, and 31. And he addresses it in 11, 1. Should we sin because of grace? And his response is, how could we? If we understand the cross and grace, the answer is, do we sin because of it? The answer is never. No. Stop it. In fact, 6.11 says we're dead to sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 6.18, 19, and 22. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He says this isn't a great argument. It's an accurate argument, but it's not the best one. 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your, your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. It says, no, we used to be slaves to sin. And now, it's a this is the weakest of arguments, but it's still true and accurate. It's very human. It's crude even, not crude in a sinful or inappropriate way, crude in a raw and simplistic way. It's human, but if, it, if it's what you need to not sin and abuse grace, then consider yourself a slave to righteousness. It's a sometimes necessary and an accurate illustration, if and when it helps, to remind us, that we do not have license to sin. The gospel does not lead to licentiousness. That's an abuse of the gospel. You have the freedom to go down that road because you are completely forgiven. But a wise person who understands the gospel will not walk down that road. And when we find ourselves heading that way, we'll run back. There are better illustrations if you can maturely embrace them and we see them in scripture I would encourage you to think through that as well, but here are a couple. Adoption, freedom, and friend. Not a slave. That's not how Jesus uses us. But if it helps you, then think that through. I'll live as a slave to righteousness, not because it earns me favor, but because I know it and because I struggle to enjoy the freedom without abusing it, then fine. Slaves of righteousness. But it's not Paul's favorite. And in fact, he did declare, hey, this is kind of like a very basic argument. It's not the best one. But it is accurate. And then finally, that verse we all love, 623, for the wages of sin is death, death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel. The Romans road continues, but this is the gospel at its core. For the wages of sin is death, earned condemnation, but the free gift of God, it's not works, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, it's through faith. We live in a fallen world of death and enslavement to sin. There's no getting around that. There's no hiding from it. People deny it, but they're wrong for doing that. Just look around and you will see it everywhere. Look around at this world and you will see the goodness. This is Romans 1. You'll see the goodness and the awe-inspiring part of the world that's meant to direct you to God and to worship him. But you'll also see because of Adam's sin and our own sin, the bad and the broken, the problem of evil part of the world. And it's because of our sin. We introduced it. We brought it into our life and the equation of our experience. Wonderfully, though, through Christ's sacrifice, we are no longer condemned. Death is no longer the end and our wages, because we've been offered life in Christ. And then, this is where Romans is going to end up, because we are freed from death and sin through faith in Christ, we're to live righteous. If need be, view yourself as a slave to righteousness. But that's not the best illustration. Paul's not going to bring it up again in Romans 12 through 16, where he's talking about transformed life but it fits here in his argument and I would encourage you if 
you're hearing the gospel for the first time or it's clicking for the first time, go read Romans 10, 9 and 2, and it will tell you this. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. That's the gospel. If you have never encountered it before or never understood it before, but it makes sense now, when I close in prayer, just pray to God and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm following you. If you're a Christian and you know you're struggling with sin, you've been abusing grace and running and, and trying to live in license like the Corinthian church, know this, number one, you're forgiven and you cannot shake God's love for you. You are his friend and you are no longer condemned, but stop it. You're not meant to live that way. The gospel transforms us. It does not leave us in sinfulness. So refocus. That's how we talk about it in the youth group. Refocus on Christ and on the gospel and live holy because you know and enjoy his grace. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, we praise your name. We were your enemies and you called us friend. We were condemned and you gave us life. Lord, we thank you that we do not get stuck in Romans 1 through 3's condemnation, but it turns to 4, 5, and 6, the core of the gospel that you redeem, that you reconcile, that you loved us and you make us right. And so we praise your name. Amen.